Good evening, and welcome to Hemispheres, KGNU's weekly show about all that is happening in our world. I'm your host, Jim Banks, and tonight I'm excited to have Paul Rosali as our guest. Paul is a herpetologist, naturalist, and author, and he has spent extensive time working and adventuring in the Amazon rainforests. His book, Mother of God, about his life and work to conserve and protect these precious ecosystems, has just come out in paperback. Paul is most recently famous for being eaten alive by a giant anaconda on the Discovery Channel, and we'll talk to him about that. Let me get the board here. Paul, welcome to KGNU. Thanks for having me, Jim. Well, we're excited to have you. So, Paul, before we get into your book, I've just got to start with you and the anaconda. Yeah. Why did you do that, and how does it relate to your work in the Amazon? Well, the whole thing came about as a way to get people to sort of pay attention to what's going on down there. You know, so you have this incredible ecosystem, the most biodiverse place in the world, more plants and animals than anywhere else on the planet, and it's getting torn apart. Uh, so, we, you know, we came up with this idea. I was sitting with a producer just, you know, kind of just talking, and he was talking about the anaconda research I do. And he was like, you know, has anybody ever been eaten? And I said, I said, yeah, they have. And I don't know why people don't believe that. You know, when you're out in the middle of the Amazon and someone gets eaten, you know, no one's there documenting it with their phone. If your mom gets eaten, you're just upset about it. Um, they, they're not sort of part of the YouTube culture that we are. And, um, you know, I said, oh, just joking. I said, you know, I should just throw on some, you know, some ridiculous suit and get eaten just to prove that it's possible. And then from there... Um, we got a lot of interest in that idea. And I figured, you know, if it, if, it, if it really was something that fascinated people so much, maybe giving it a shot would provide a good chance to tell people about, you know, this ecosystem and, and these species that need protecting. So it was kind of kind of a experiment in sexing up conservation. <laughs> there you go. And how did it go? Did it sex it up? Did you get some good <laughs> response? Or? Well, <laughs> it was a little bit of a, of a disaster. Um you know, the network, I think, was really into, um, you know, getting the adventure and the, the, the heart-pounding danger of it, you know, conveyed. And, uh, you know, I, I fought really hard, and we actually filmed a lot of really cool, really awesome, you know, science and adventure scenes that were very authentic. And what actually ended up making into the show was, like, a lot, a lot of the less authentic stuff that focused more around you know, sort of making it into more of a Jaws episode than, than actually something about science. So it, uh, it didn't go quite as I planned it. But, but what we did, what we were able to do is that because of Discovery's involvement, you know, just the whole project, I was able to actually start the first study of anacondas in lowland Amazon. So that's still going on now. So that, that came out of the project, which that was definitely worth it. That's awesome, and I'm glad that that happened. So, Paul, tell us about your book, Mother of God. I read it recently, and it's it's just a wonderful book. Tell us kind of how you got to write it and why and what you hope it does. Well, I, um, you know, after, after, at this point, I've been working on the Amazon for a solid 10 years. And at the time I started writing, I had been down there for half a decade working and just sort of had the luck of coming across some things that I know that other people, that I, I knew these I knew these experiences were kind of unique, kind of out there. You know, I got in with the local people. I was working to protect this, this specific river that's very, very threatened and sits in between a few national parks. And that's really the focus of the book is talking about, 
you know, the Las Piedras River and, and sort of this wild place that's being destroyed. Um, you know, but then, then these, these, these strange adventures that I had the privilege of having, like discovering the floating forest um, that was a sanctuary for anacondas and, and sort of going out on these solos that got more and more intense as time went on and, you know, just, just seeing parts of the Amazon that, that other, you know, that I know that very few people have gotten to go to, um, you know, that sort of mixed in with the fact that when you're down there, you get, you know, you just naturally absorb the on-the-ground story of what's actually happening. You know, we hear about the Amazon rainforest, and, you know, we're, we're thousands of miles away from there, you know. So actually getting to see what's going on when these logging roads are cut, getting to see how international politics is deciding the fate of these species and local indigenous communities down there, you know, it's um, it's the Wild West down there right now. I mean, you got loggers and gold miners and, and, and thousands and thousands of miles of wilderness with no, no one to police it or control it. Um, you know, it's, it's the Wild West with, with anacondas and jaguars. It's absolutely <laughs> crazy down there right now. So tell us about uh, the floating forests and the floating, because I, when, I, when I read your book, it was like, boy, that is just amazing. Tell us how you learned about it, how you got there, and what they're like. So I, I, you know, and this is just to tell the listeners, this is all stuff that that's in the book. Um, you know, I, I went down to the Amazon when I was when I was 18 years old. I dropped out of high school. I started going to college, got a research position. I mean, this is my passion. I knew that this was where I wanted to go, and I've been down there for I think three years. By the time somebody brought up the fact that there was this special place for anacondas, um, you know, when I went down, I had been expecting that I would see anacondas everywhere. It's the Amazon, that's where they're from. And sort of what I got confronted with when I went down there is that this is, anacondas are an apex predator. And like any apex predator, they influence the ecosystem in a profound way. But they were not as common as I, as I expected. And, and local people were telling me that there was a time when they were much more common. And when you do the research, you find out that no one's ever done any kind of study on anacondas in lowland Amazon rainforest, it's very hard to do. You have to be in the swamps. You have to be in extremely dense, you know, thick vegetation areas with these giant snakes that have 200 teeth in their mouths. It's a dangerous job. So no one's, no one's done these studies yet. And uh, so we have no baseline data. We don't know if anacondas are, are disappearing. We don't know if they're, if they're doing okay. We have no idea how they're influencing the ecosystem. So the local people, when I started just very, very casually surveying the species, the local people started telling me that if you want to see a real anaconda, if you want to see a real giant, go to this place, and they called it the Boayo, the place of boas. And uh, what it actually is is an aquifer. And so you have isolated in the jungle this very, very deep lake with an archipelago of grassy islands floating on the surface of this lake. And, and these, these islands make up this sort of anaconda fortress. You know, because the islands are on top of the water, anything that steps foot on one of these islands, the ripples go out across the whole lake. All the anacondas are notified immediately. It's like an alarm system. And they can plunge down under the water. So they're safe from predators, 100%. At the same time, they get animals coming for water, so they have a constant prey base coming in for them. And on the first night that we went to this place, this completely alien landscape lit up by moonlight, um, you know, we saw these tracks snaking around. And some of the tracks were about as thick as an oil drum. Some of them were as thick as my arm. Uh, 
and you know me and my me and my partner JJ we were we were you know debating whether or not these could actually be from snakes and I was saying no way no way could snakes get that big and he was telling me no no this is anaconda this is anaconda and then finally we came on we came on a female anaconda that was at least 25 feet long probably about 400 pounds and and uh yeah, almost as thick as an oil drum i mean this thing was huge i have a six foot wingspan my arms are six feet from fingertip to fingertip and i couldn't i couldn't wrap my arms around her i jumped on this snake and she carried me for about 20 feet before she dove into the water and i had to let go which was an incredible experience um but you know ever since then my my dream sort of has been to measure the snake because i think she's a record breaker what a story. And when I was reading that, it was like, wow, that's just incredible. <laughs> so, Paul, tell us one thing I was really impressed with in your book. Tell us some of the things that those who have never been there don't get to experience. Tell us all the things you see, hear, touch, smell, and taste in the uh, Amazonian rainforests. Um, when, you, when you walk into the rainforest for the first time, I think the, fir- the to me the first thing that overwhelms you know, as a guide, I get, I get to bring a lot of people in, so I get to see a lot of people's first time. And uh, I remember my first time vividly. And I think one of the one of the things that hits you the hardest is just the sound. You know, everything there has been evolving for millions of years to be invisible. You know, the the the, the less you can be detected, the greater chance you stand of surviving. And in this ecosystem, everything gets eaten from the biggest tree to the ants to the flies to the jaguars everything at some point is eaten in this ecosystem so uh it's a it's very competitive but when you get in there you hear the toucans and and the parrots and the and and all these different animals calling out and it's this just this overwhelming sensory experience because there is there are so many orchids and there are so many different types of termites that all of these smells all of these incredibly loud sounds uh the frogs at night are almost deafening um when you step in there you you are assaulted by all this and at first you don't know what any of it means you know and there's thousands and thousands of species so it's going to take you a long time to to start decoding that and becoming familiar with it um but you get this sense that from the leaves on the ground to the rotting logs to the trees that are that are covered you know a single tree that has vines growing all over it and then moss growing on those vines and then mushrooms growing out of it, you know, you can sit there and when you actually, you know, and I do this with people and I've, I've done this, in, you know, for, for different projects, where you start counting the species on a single tree. And you're talking about, you know, 50 or 100 different species of living things, all living on this one living tree. So each, each, each tree, each leaf is this microcosm of, of an ecosystem. And you're in such an unbelievably complex world that it just it just takes you. It just absolutely takes you. Um, and then, of course, there is you know there's there's clouds of butterflies. The Amazon has more butterflies than anywhere else in the world. So when you walk into certain places where there's salt on the ground, you know, in salt deposits, you'll get these. You know, when they fly, when they're startled, they'll fly up in these vortexes. So you'll have a a 30 foot tornado of rainbow colors as all these thousands of butterflies are flying and uh you know things things like that that just take your breath away seeing seeing an 18 foot you know crocodile swim by you seeing a jaguar even seeing some of the smaller stuff seeing leaf cutter ants that recycle almost 20 percent of everything in the forest 
you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really rather, it's difficult not to take it to almost a spiritual level with, you know, how much life is there. It's just absolutely incredible. It sounds just amazing. We're talking to Paul Rosali. He wrote the book Mother of God. It's just come out in paperback. If you would like to ask Paul any questions, uh, talk to him about anything, please give us a call, 303-442-4242. Also, Paul has generously given us three of his books. So if you would like to uh, get one of his books, we are giving them for a $40 donation tonight. So please, at the same number, 303-442-4242, give us a call, and uh, we'd love to give you one of those books. So, Paul, one-fifth of the oxygen of the planet comes from the Amazon, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's just, that's amazing um, to think about. And yet, everything you've just said, it's a paradise almost, like you said, it's virtually spiritual, but it's threatened, isn't it? It's uh, like you said, it's the Wild West. Talk about talk about that. Well, you know, we uh, I guess it, when we live up here, where, where we you know up in up in up in the fifty states, it's easy, I guess, to forget for a lot of us. I mean, it, globally, fifty percent of the, the population on Earth uh, currently lives in cities. So there's a lot of people that are not connected to where their food is coming from, that are not connected to wildlife, that are not connected to where their water is coming from. You know, these are people, they turn on a tap, they go to the grocery store, they, they, they open their, you know, turn on their car. You know, their, their connection with nature is rather, rather altered. And in the Amazon, you know, we have this wealth, incredible wealth of, of, of resources there. You know, so you have a fifth of the planet's fresh water in this in this one forest in this one system it's circulating this biome and then coming out of that as it pours into the atlantic ocean is a fifth of our planet's oxygen so you know you have those two things right there that are huge mechanical advantages for us that are free ecosystem services but you know at the same time this is a vast vast area and for someone that wants to profit and make money off of cattle farming, which is currently the biggest destroyer of the Amazon. Um, you know, they go in there and they, these huge cattle companies, beef companies, will go in there and clear out thousands of miles and just let the cows eat the grass. And within two years, you know, that Amazon, rain, as a rule, rainforest soil is rather infertile. There's, there's absolutely no nutrients to it. It's, it's clay. You know, it used to be the, the, it used to be an ocean floor. So, you know, when you cut that, you have the nutrients that the forest contained in, in, the, in the logs and sticks and twigs and leaves. But once that is used up, once you farm for one or two, three years on that, all those nutrients are taken up and it's not going to be replenished so that the, the land turns into a desert. So you might get one or two good years and then you're, you're left with an absolute wasteland, so you have to go cut more forest. So it's a completely unsustainable practice. And, of course, most of that beef is going being shipped up to uh, fast food venues, and it's nice, cheap Brazilian beef. And, of course, Brazil controls 60% of the Amazon, so largely Brazil decides what happens to the, to the Amazon. Um, you know, but there's beef, and then the other side of it is soybean farming. There's gold mining that's pouring mercury into the, into the rivers, which, uh, you know, the anaconda study that we're doing, it's interesting because anacondas, are a riparian predator because they they kind of rule the rivers. You know the mercury is going in and, and infiltrating the fish and on up through the rest of the ecosystem. But no matter which way you take through the food web, 
you always end up at Anaconda. You know, they're the top, Anacondas and Caymans. So they're going to bioaccumulate a lot of the toxins that are in those river ecosystems. So as we, as we research these anacondas, we're also learning about how the, some of the biggest you know, forces that are hurting the whole Amazon are entering the ecosystem um, and, sort of, and sort of accumulating in these species, including us. You know, pregnant women are, are, are extremely susceptible to mercury contamination. Um, but, yeah, it's really, it's, really, it's really quite a difficult thing to watch. You have this absolute, you know, really pristine, amazing avatar, but on planet Earth sort of thing going on. Yeah. And, and yeah, you know, to, to a guy, you know, there's two types of people that are, that are destroying the Amazon. There's, there's the poor farmer who has nothing, so the only thing he can do is burn down the forest to feed his family. Um, you know, we can help him. That's an easy problem to fix. You know, he, you can, the, you, careful plan. You know, we're very smart today. We have iPhones. I'm talking to you from New York, and you're in Colorado. It's not, you know, we're, we can solve any problem. Sure. That, that, that guy, we can figure that out. The problem is when you have international politics converging on, on resources. You know, when you have now China is currently one of the biggest players deciding the fate of the Amazon. They want timber. They want water. They want palm oil, which, you know, again, you just need space. You cut down the forest, you grow some palm trees, and you get this palm oil that goes into, you know, things like Doritos and Oreos and all of our packaged candy snack stuff. Um, completely unneeded, but it's, it's a product that's there. You know, in the last few years, I, I, a lot of my colleagues have been working in Indonesia to stop. Um, Indonesia has the second largest amount of rainforest in the world, and they're getting devastated by palm oil, which, have, which is killing, you know, the habit, kill, killing the rainforest, which uh, destruction of rainforest accounts for 20% of our global carbon emissions. You know, everybody's very worried about how much carbon we're pumping out there. If we stop cutting forests, you knock out 20% of our carbon emissions. Yeah. Um, but as, as a wildlife specialist, you know, I'm dealing with the fact that, you know, so out there in Indonesia, we're losing elephants, orangutans, Sumatran rhinos, Sumatran tigers. Um, you know, and in the Amazon, you're talking about a biodiversity that's just off the charts. We don't even know how many species are there. A lot of them are still undescribed. So, Paul, is Brazil doing anything at all to protect the Amazon, or are they simply uh, putting it up for sale? <laughs> uh, it depends. It depends where in Brazil you are. It depends what administration is in power in Brazil. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people all over the world in Brazil, in the U.S. I mean, just everywhere working to protect the Amazon. The problem is, is that every every project that hurts, you know, it's you know, you have the people that, that are awake. You have the scientists and the conservationists and the local people who are trying to protect the forest. And then you have people that can profit from the forest. You know, so, so if you have, if you have uh, just a few politicians that, that, that realize that they can get a nice, you know, a nice payday from making a new road or making a new dam. A dams are big ones. Brazil just made a devastating dam uh, called the Belo Monte Dam. That, that has been protested for decades, and they finally just said, you know what, we're doing it, um, in spite of the fact that the whole world was begging them not to. Um, but, you know, again, you're talking about you, for, for a dam, for a hydroelectric dam to be effective, you need a decline. You need, you need the water to fall somewhere. In the Amazon, the whole basin is flat. So when you make a dam, it floods 
an unbelievably large area of land, killing that forest, and you get relatively little hydroelectric power. So it's very unsustainable. But the company that's building the dam is going to get a huge payday, and a bunch of other guys involved in the project are going to get a huge payday. So you have these... Then we, you know, I work in Peru mostly, and that's you know we see this all the time that you'll get, you'll get a, you know, a company that's sort of interested in the contracts and the benefits of building a new road into a national park, so that an oil company, and all of a sudden, all these players of all, you say, wait, who who wants this road? And it's, you know, a, a cement company, an oil company, and a something else. You say, well, wow, so we don't actually need this road, but these guys. Are, are making this case for this road because they can make a buck. And that's the way it always is. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really all it is because, you know what, the local people, they, they, they understand the value of the forest. Even if, even if a few of them need to, need to do small-scale clearing and hunting, they're not going to destroy the whole thing. They don't, have the capa- they don't have the power to do that. You know, and, and the scientists obviously know what it's about. So, so who would do something where you're essentially just torching the Sistine Chapel, you know, who would destroy something so beautiful and meaningful? It's, it's, people, that, it's people that want to make a buck. So it's, it really it comes down to, you know, having, and today with the Internet and social media and, and how quickly we can all exchange information, having the ability for the guys on the ground to talk to people internationally and say, hey, look, don't let this, I mean, I don't know if you know the, there's a great documentary that recently came out about Virunga National Park, um, and it's called Virunga. And it was actually nominated for, for an Academy Award, but what it did was it shined light on the fact that there was a British petroleum company that had come. This is the only place that these gorillas exist, Virunga National Park in Africa. And this British petroleum company, was this, this company called Soko was down there trying to get the gorillas out of the park, helping the rebel forces, just really just causing so many problems because they were interested in what oil might be under the forest. And again, you're talking about a super endangered, iconic endangered species. And the only reason that it's really threatened was because a couple of guys wanted to make a buck. Sure. And thankfully the documentary came out and it shined, shined a spotlight right on them, and it looks like you know, that's sort of bringing in at least some some percentage of calv- cavalry to help them out, um, you know. But but that that type of thing is happening more and more. And I think with the Amazon, uh, we're slowly getting to the point where even even country leaders and politicians are starting to realize that you know what, it's bad for business if we don't have clean water. You know, the, the population is not going to be happy if they're if they're if they're drinking polluted water and if they don't have a forest. So. I think that it's, we're starting to see a turnaround where people are saying, okay, wait a second, we might really just need this thing too much to allow other people to destroy it. Sure. We're talking to Paul Rosali, who wrote the book Mother of God, and Cecilia has uh, gotten a copy, so thank you, Cecilia. We have two left. Nice. Thank you, yeah. Cecilia. And um, I guess I saw something that she taught in Brazil at, at one time, so that's awesome. Ah. And if right. you would like to talk to Paul or you want to, want to ask him anything or discuss anything with him, please give us a call, 303-442-4242. So, Paul, you mentioned the Sistine Chapel. That reminded yeah. me of something that Edward Abbey said, that, you know, we wouldn't put a road through um, the Sistine Chapel. We wouldn't put a road through um, the Taj Mahal. Yeah. And yet we're putting roads through all the national parks in America. We're putting roads and destroying the Amazon 
is that sense of the sacred there and a political question for you? Uh-oh. Well, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> with capitalism as we know it today, global international yeah. capitalism, is the rainforest, is it possible to save it or is it simply going to be destroyed? Well, um, I actually have a, um, I think it's, I have a hopeful answer to that question. Um, and that is that we can't live without it. You can't knock out a fifth of our planet's oxygen and expect global weather to go as normal. Um, you know, so so people again, it's not good. You know, you're you're who are interested in profit, like you said. If, if we're talking if we're talking capitalism here, it's it's bad for business, and at some point, it's going to start to be so bad for business that that it, we're going to have heavy-duty help in protecting these places because, you know, um, right now one of the big things that people are talking about is the oceans. Uh, roughly, I think, over 3 billion people depend on the oceans as an important part of their, their protein intake. And, again, that's free stuff we're getting. We're getting free fish. We always have from the oceans. Um, if that if that system is knocked out, which at this point we're we're on the brink of that, we've, right. we've really messed up our ocean ecosystems. If we mess that up, think of how much more it's going to cost, and how and how radically different our lives would be to have to produce all of that protein and fish out of thin air. I mean, we that comes standard with with living on life on Earth, you know. So I actually think that that yes, these places can be saved. I, I actually think that once the the trick is to to sort of batten down the hatches and protect these places while a, comp- uh, a country goes through the, the sort of adolescent growing pains of, of development. You know, if you have millions and millions of poor people, you have to alleviate that poverty and, and get those people employed and, and sort of not looking to, to go poaching and burning and, and woodcutting, because then you're going you're gonna to lose the forest. You know, in, in the U.S. now, we've brought wolves back. You know, we yeah. have... Our manatees are bouncing back. Humpback whales. You know, we, everybody got together and said, whales are going to disappear, which this was way before its time. I'm actually completely amazed that this happened. But whale numbers started at, humpback whale numbers started at 130,000. And after, you know, a few decades of whaling, they were down to 8,000. We were on the brink of losing humpback whales, the most beautiful thing. And right now, I think we're up to about 80 or 90,000 humpbacks globally, which they're almost, they're, they're, they're steadily climbing back to pre-whaling numbers. If you can just stop, you know, most of these threats will go away after a while. You know, right now, Chinese medicine um, is demanding tiger parts and rhino horns. And, and rhinos are, are incredibly close to going extinct. But if we can, if we can protect them for, for a few decades and sort of let that trade go away, where there is no rhino horn to be bought, you know, then, you know, and educate the people, then, then, then eventually, you know, these, these things can bounce back. So I think, I think we're at the most crucial time in history. We're seeing a huge, massive um, extinction period brought on by us. But I do not, I also don't think it's hopeless. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I certainly don't think that, that, that it's all gonna, it's all gonna just die. I think, I just think that we got a big job ahead of us. Yeah. That's all. Well, I hope you're right. 